Hi, folks, and welcome to Global. I'm Sinclair Stafford, your host for this episode. Global is the International Republican Institute's monthly podcast where we share stories and insight from authentic voices on the countries where we work. Please subscribe, rate us, share us, and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. This helps people discover Global. Today, we'll, we're going to be unpacking corruption, what it looks like and what it may not look like in other countries, what the international community can do about it, and its relationship with democracy. You'll discover that corruption is not as clear-cut an issue as you might have thought, nor is it very easy to deal with. Additionally, there isn't a, a straightforward relationship between a type of government and the extent of corruption. Democratic pressures can either encourage or discourage corruption. To learn more about this prevalent and yet abstruse issue, I talked to Dr. Brett Berman, a postdoctoral fellow at IRI's Center for Global Impact, and Dr. Brian Kloss, assistant professor of global politics at University College London, columnist for the Washington Post, and host of the podcast Power Corrupts. First up, we have Dr. Brett Berman. Okay, Brett, so you've studied corruption in political parties. Um, what does corruption in political parties look like, and where does it start? It depends a lot on what you mean by corruption, right? So the sort of traditional way, I think, especially in the development world of thinking about corruption is as a a kind of one-off uh, use of uh, public resources for private gain. But I think when you think of corruption in the context of political competition and, and political parties specifically, it could take on a lot of different manifestations that sort of don't closely fit that. At one level, you can think of this as a sort of perfectly reasonable way for elites to connect with citizens. And like Francis Fukuyama and others have argued, um, this is sort of a normal part of political development. Um, is, you know, the exchange of, of private goods for some kind of public service. So gift giving uh, in order to receive some kind of public resource. If you think of it in those terms, it's a way for political elites to uh, relate to citizens and one that's arguably better than the alternatives. So you can think that's, um, you know, probably better than, say, feudalism or something like that. Other forms of political competition, especially those that are centered around political parties, it could take on other forms, right? So you think of uh, political clientelism, targeted exchanges of private goods uh, for political support, and that often takes the form of jobs, right? I think sort of more nefariously, it's in like things that people, like most people agree would qualify as kind of corruption within a political system or within political parties are things like vote buying, uh, electoral manipulation, incentivizing people to vote, suppressing votes through violence or coercion, uh, organizing people for repeat voting, things like that, I think, are obviously a little more nefarious. Yeah, because I was actually going to ask, I thought that there would be sort of a universal definition of corruption. But what I noticed is that you're, you're talking a lot about some things that are very context-specific and culture-specific. So there could be differences in what's perceived to be a very corrupt practice in one country versus a normal way of operating in the other, and it not necessarily be a bad thing. Right. I want to shy away from making value judgments of good or bad, right? Mm -hmm. The reality is that we have to adapt to the context, and we're doing anti-corruption development work with IRI specifically. My experience and my background is studying anti-corruption reforms in Georgia and Ukraine. And Georgia is a great example of that, where you have, you know, small villages um, that are composed largely of, you know, extended kin groups, social networks. The way things are done at that level is to offer positions uh, in the public sector in exchange for support on, on whatever. For an organization like IRI or USAID or whoever to come into a village and say, you know, it's inappropriate that you're giving the job of principal at the local school to your cousin, that's, that's going to rub a lot of people the wrong way. You know, we have to take that sort of context into account 
uh, when we're doing this kind of work and using words and thinking about the language that we use in, in those contexts is, is important. That's why I don't want to get into value judgments, saying things are good or bad or whatever. I mean, the, the fact is, is it's reality for a lot of people, and we have to be cognizant of how they view that in their cultural context. Like, you know, you can imagine how there might be some disagreement, even within one country, about what is considered, you know, a fine standard way of operating versus actually corrupt practice. I'm thinking especially of Jordan, where people are... They understand that, you know, that way of operating where you give positions to people is the norm, but there is debate over whether that's acceptable. And it's often the people who, of of course, are not receiving that benefit who dislike it. But once they receive it, then they're happy with it. Right, right, right. I don't want to give the impression that, you know, that that cultures are uniform. There's a lot of variation within countries, even within communities, about things like values and uh, cultural practices and things like that. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely variable. And you would expect the people that are, you know, the sort of losers in those one-off exchanges to, to have a different opinion about it. So even within a particular country context, you can have different, you know, ways of, of perceiving, you know, how we call things, which is the, the sort of larger point that I want to make here, aside from value judgments and whether a corruption is good or bad or whatever. It's just that sort of language matters and how we talk about it in context matters. Given that cultural-specific context, how do you think corruption, especially political corruption, weakens democracy? My first instinct on this is to push back against the question a little bit and kind of think about, you know, what exactly we mean um, by democracy. But I think we need to think a little more seriously about that. A lot of countries with relatively high levels of corruption, especially political corruption and corruption within political parties, that we would consider pretty democratic. And so... We need to think about the conditions where sort of democracy uh, and authoritarianism, corruption overlap and where they don't. In terms of political contestation, I think there's not much of a relationship there. But in terms of kind of representation, which is another specific aspect of democracy, you can think of the ways that corruption would be really, really bad, right? One framework that I think is really useful for thinking about this uh, is Barbara Geddes' Politician's Dilemma. Um, So she's a political scientist that thinks of uh, this problem in terms of uh, a dilemma uh, for political incumbents and public sector employees and trying to trade off the long-term benefits of reform for the short-term benefits of corruption, right? So political corruption, you can imagine, has short-term political benefits, right? People will take what's available to them, especially resources associated with the state, uh, and give it to people directly for their votes or to threaten to withdraw it if they don't vote for them, right? So that's a way of doing politics. In a lot of cases, it's uh, kind of the predominant way of doing politics, right? And so even if you have a kind of good faith reformer that comes to power and manages to win an election, their first sort of priority may be to introduce you know, anti-corruption reforms in the long term. Now, in order to get that done, they have to play the political game in the short term, and that means sort of staying in power and winning elections. So it's a, it's a real dilemma for them in trying to decide, you know, am I going to give up this tool that can keep me in power to get my long-term program done, or am I going to try to get my long-term program done and risk losing the next election? That has a lot of implications for whether governments can deliver things. In terms of Uh, you know, that representation aspect of democracy is where uh, political corruption in particular can be harmful because it encourages particularistic exchanges, right? The use of state resources to to benefit one influential individual, to benefit one company, to benefit, you know, one factory owner that can produce a lot of votes 
um, for an incumbent, as opposed to these packages of big public goods um, that are designed to benefit um, kind of most citizens. I think I did see a study by Transparency International that did correlate uh, corruption with weak democracy or, or other mm -hmm. kind yep. of symptoms of a weak state. Yep. But I guess that, again, def depends on the universal definition of corruption. I should say that the, I, th I think there is a generally well-demonstrated um, that semi-authoritarian authoritarian regimes, on average, exhibit higher levels of corruption than democracies. To get back to, to this larger question of why that's a bad thing and how it, how it hurts people, you can think of some very clear examples of how corruption in these sorts of contexts hurts people. So if you have you know, businesses or individuals that have access to state resources or that can co-opt you know, regulatory systems, uh, or that have undue influence on, on political elites, you know, that can manifest itself in a series of, like, things that range from really annoying things for citizens to things that are deadly for citizens. At one level, it's just, you know, if you have politicians that are growing a public sector or growing a bureaucracy so that they have a, a broader base of political support that they can mobilize for elections because they don't have the salary to actually pay them, will encourage or allow those people to take bribes for providing what should be free public services. So registrations, you know, um, you know traffic police extorting bribes is a good example of this. I was in Ukraine for the Euromaidan protests uh, to, for my dissertation research and you know, heard you know clear examples of this. People were really frustrated. Um, they would try to open a hair salon and would literally have to pay off um, local police departments as if they were you know mafias, extortion rackets. They would come by and say, you know, first of all, you need to pay this to this person to get the business license, but also you're going to need protection. Um, and so you're just going to go ahead and pay us for protection from whatever. The implication is if you don't pay, then those people will come by and, and mess with your business. And then it ranges up to things that kill people, right? So if you're buying your way out of, of regulation, you see, um, you know, building collapses, fires, um, inability to respond to natural disasters. We've seen this in Mexico, Romania. I think it's especially interesting when you're talking about corruption that causes a crisis versus, mm -hmm. you know, that is just a minor annoyance to yeah. daily life. And the link between that and revolutions that we see, mm -hmm. um, which you should check out our other podcast on protest movements. Yep. People get really upset by some forms of corruption that create like a public crisis, right. and that can cause yep. a regime change. That I think is a really interesting little subliterature on corruption is the idea that things can act as focal points for people to reveal their preference or something, right? Because the way that I think we tend to think of corruption as a political system or as a social phenomenon is that you know people sort of do it because they think that that's how everyone else is behaving. One level, everyone's frustrated by it. Everybody hates it. Everybody would rather live in a country that's governed with an objective state bureaucracy that provides security and public goods. But their perception is that everybody else is doing it. You know, I don't want to be the one to stick my neck out. And so often you need some sort of focal point. And in the cases that I'm familiar with, Georgia, Ukraine, uh, Armenia more recently, Kyrgyzstan, these, these sorts of protest movements that take on an anti-corruption character have centered around fraudulent elections. Um, that's a really good focal point because they're predictable. People can prepare for them. People expect fraud to occur. And so if you're a civil society organization or something like that, you could sort of plan around them. Um, and also it's something where people have already taken an action, right? They've gone to vote, or at least a larger number of people than normal, reveal simultaneously that they're all frustrated with the status quo. Um, and so elections might be one, uh, you know, some sort of crisis, failure to respond to natural disasters, something like that might be another one. Okay, so I want to shift now to kind of 
a more solution-focused mm-hmm. yep. aspect of uh, the corruption topic. Since the definition of corruption has changed over time, how have anti-corruption institutions or organizations or people changed the way they combat corruption? In terms of how do you change a status quo, you know, how do you get to reform from political systems that are pervasively corrupt? First of all, in contextual terms, there's a, probably a couple of different pathways. And one that we have to think seriously about is an authoritarian pathway to reform. Uh, and so a lot of the cases where you see big, dramatic, you know, social norm changing reform programs have been in authoritarian contexts. And the classic example in the work that I'm familiar with is Singapore and Lee Kuan Yew and the People's Action Party who are in power um, decades and were accused of all sorts of, you know, curtailment of civil liberties and the denial of due process. But those things, I think their defenders would argue, were in service of a larger program of anti-corruption reform. And that worked. Singapore went from being a pervasively corrupt uh, polity to uh, to one of the cleanest in the world, and it continues to be. But it's probably a big minority, a big exception to the rule, right? I mean, yeah, you, absolutely. You yeah. generally authoritarian regimes yes. tend to be more corrupt. Yeah, but I, yeah, but in terms of, of how you move out of that, I think that's one way. To bring in Georgia, which is a case I'm more familiar with, this was another case of, you know, top-down reform. You know, if you look back at 2002, 2003, during the Rose Revolution, Mikhail Saakashvili and the UNM, the national movement, had formed, you know, basically from scratch an anti-corruption political party. Um, they played a key role in organizing protests that resulted in the Rose Revolution. By all outward appearances, seemed to be democratic, reform-oriented. We're going to do good things for the country. And in the first two years, they did. You know, Georgia moved from one of the most corrupt countries in the world to one of the least in, in a matter of a couple of years. But it was not necessarily what anybody would refer to as sort of a broad-based, you know, bottom-up reform process. They came in and fired large swaths of the public sector overnight. I interviewed one person that worked in the, when I interviewed her, was working in the education ministry, but was working in a school at the time and showed up to work the next day, and the locks had been changed on the door. Right? They fired the entire traffic police and replaced them. Uh, within weeks. They ran stings on police officers and imprisoned those that were caught taking bribes, imprisoned them for eight to ten years uh, with with no due process at all. Um, And even when I talked to the people that were involved in this process, we're not at all shy about it. It was a case where they produced real demonstrable improvements in people's lives day to day. But they did it uh, in a top-down way and in a way that after those first couple of years, very clearly devolved into a more controlled political process. So it may not be a sustainable way to do it. Exactly. I think it's definitely not one that we should be encouraging as a matter of development policy. Uh, But it's one path. And one thing we think, you know, I think there is something to be said for the fact that political stability uh, alleviates that politician's dilemma that we talked about earlier. So if you're not faced with, like, immediate political pressure, um, it makes it easier to make that trade-off um, where you're providing public goods um, instead of relying on short-term clientelistic exchanges. Now, that has consequences that you're going to have to deal with down the road, and, and UNM's political opponents in Georgia dealt with it, and UNM eventually uh, it caught up to them in the 2012 election. So, um, you know, not something we want to encourage, but it's a pathway to reform. The democratic pathways is another way to get there, and I think those, unfortunately, are not likely to be replicated. You know, civil service reform in the United States is something that took decades, 100, 100 years, 150 years, something like that. One lesson that we can take, you could point to successes of reform programs um, that occurred through kind of intra-party competition, right? And so in, like, the idea was like in order to compete in national-level elections, 
people in the political parties got really fed up with corruption that was going on at the local level. So again, I, like it, it's not that these democratic pathways won't be replicated. I mean, they might be, but we need to be thinking 30, 40, 50 years out. It's more likely to be associated with shifts in the economy, shifts away from natural resources, um, you know, things like that. I don't want to get too in the weeds about whether each of these is more likely, except to say these are structural processes. That theme of um, expecting quick results over a process mm -hmm. that has taken U.S. or other European countries, you know, decades, if not centuries, is a common problem that we in the development community face, um, as grants are supposed to be deliver results within one year, two years, five years, never <laughs> 10 years. First of all, I agree wholeheartedly. We haven't seen a lot of success per dollar spent on anti-corruption reform programs. But what I, where I disagree with the people that make this argument are that, you know, what we should be looking for are big, large-scale sort of shifts in social equilibria. Um, you know, we do see marginal improvements, and I think that's important. We've, you know, at IRI have had some success with, uh, you know, supporting, you know, open procurement programs, e-procurement, stuff like that, development of one-stop shops. These are low-hanging fruit, where especially if you're able to identify reform champions at lower levels of government, where the stakes might be, the political stakes might be a little bit lower, um, you can make some of these improvements on the margins that will make people's lives better in a demonstrable way that will put you know, thousands, in some cases, millions of dollars back in the budget. So it's like an open procurement system, even if, you know, political incumbents are keeping like the big sensitive contracts out of that system, even if it puts, you know, a few more million dollars in the budget for people to provide, you know, things like infrastructure or development or economic development or public health. That's money back in the budget that we that we didn't see before. So I imagine there's a lot of things that we still don't know about how to tackle mm -hmm. corruption that you talked about. A lot of this may actually be dependent on structural changes that, mm -hmm. that the development workers have no control over. So, um, yeah, what are some things we still don't know about? Yeah, we just probably don't know most things about it. But it's, um, and that, that's the promising thing, right? It's like we have a decent idea of what's not working. But on the other hand, there are, I think there are a lot of promising interventions out there, especially if we continue to manage expectations about what's achievable and we're comfortable uh, making marginal gains that make people's lives better. One sort of really promising you know, set of interventions works on the demand side, right? If you think of corruption as a political tool, uh, then political incumbents are going to respond to electoral incentives, and they're going to respond to demands from their constituents to stop engaging in this behavior as a way to conduct politics. And so this is linked with you know, this idea of corruption as a social equilibrium that we talked about earlier, right? So everybody probably wants to live in a, an environment where they're not shaken down every day, where they don't have to pay a bunch of bribes to get registrations. They're doing this because they think that it's the best way to navigate this particular system and that everybody else in the system is acting the same way, so, right? It's like, how do we get everybody to sort of reveal that preference at the same time? Uh, and, and so there are some interventions that I think are going on in the field right now and, uh, and generating some evidence around them that I think are, are particularly promising. Um, and so one of these is uh, um, this sort of behavioral science nudge approach uh, to anti-corruption work. Um, so for example, there's a Professor Jordan Gans-Morse um, who has done um, some informational interventions uh, and experiments in Ukraine um, where you're seeing, seeing some evidence that providing people with information that the incidence of corruption is actually lower than they think 
actually makes them more likely to want to take action against it, right? This is, again, this is acting on that idea that corruption is social, right? People think that everybody's doing it. It seems like an intractable problem. Um, but if you show them that, it, well, actually, last year, only 25% of people reported paying a bribe. Um, they're more likely to say, oh, most people are actually like me. Most people think how I do. Um, you know, I can push back a little bit against, you know, this is, this is the way that things are done within this system. One thing that we still don't have a good sense of, uh, we don't have a good understanding of how these big, you know, social norm shifts occur, right? So if you think of, um, you know, things like protest cascades um, or against authoritarian regimes or election fraud or whatever, or if you think in terms of like, um, you know, social movements, even that we've seen in the United States, like the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter or something like that. We have a good sense of how the mechanisms of cascades work. We don't really have a good understanding of how or if they can be triggered with interventions or if they're just sort of um, naturally occurring phenomenon that we need to sort of be prepared for and to, and to respond to. Um, and if we think that this behavior depends on people's expectations about what other people are doing, that to me seems the most promising route to reform uh, political systems that rely on corruption is for there to be, you know, big social norm shifts on the demand side. And I think politicians and political parties essentially uh, respond to those incentives. So the more that we can, you know, generate, you know, coordinated uh, collective action against, uh, against corruption, the better. Next, we hear from Dr. Brian Kloss. So Brett laid out for us earlier in the episode that there's really no universal definition of corruption. Rather, the idea of what's corrupt varies according to different cultures and contexts. Can you think of some interesting examples from sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, or Southeast Asia of practices that we in the U.S. or the West might consider corrupt, but they don't? As you say, there's a lot of definitions of corruption. I think one that's very common is using public office for private gain. And I think that's very reductionist. I mean, I think it's, it's not broad enough to cover what we really mean when we use that word. And of course, you're right that there are, you know, very different cultural interpretations of what's corrupt behavior. The thing that I think is probably the most interesting example I've come across is with vote buying. I wrote a book in 2018 called How to Rig an Election with Nick Cheeseman, who's a professor in the UK as well. He's my former advisor. One of the things that we came across is that if you actually look at vote buying in context, in other words, where somebody who's a political official or campaign is giving you some either money or a t-shirt or some sort of bribe basically to vote for you, that is almost universally viewed as corruption in Western societies. In some African societies, in Sub-Saharan Africa, it's viewed as an expectation of what a, a politician should do to show not just that they have your back, but also that they're going to be effective at steering the resources of the government towards your community. And in places that have a shallow experience of democracy, that is often what people expect of their government. They want you know, the spoils of states, the revenues of the government to actually come back home with them. There's a, a great photo of the president of Uganda basically going out into a rural community with a bag of cash and handing it to a local leader with, like, press there, right? I mean, it's just amazing that you would imagine doing this in any sort of Western context. And the problem is that, you know, on the one hand, vote buying is something that you really need to stamp out, right? I mean, it, it corrupts elections. It, it undermines the integrity of democracy. On the other hand, one of the things that we've written about is that 
if if you could wave a magic wand and get rid of that corrupt practice tomorrow, what you might have is actually two very bad outcomes in the short term. One is that turnout might actually decrease because one of the reasons that people vote is because they believe that they'll get some sort of material benefit. And secondly, is that you might actually have less accountability in government if people no longer believe that the role of the politician is to bring the beef home, they may no longer care about politics as much, they might disengage, and then politicians might be able to just steal themselves rather than directing resources towards their communities. So this is where you start to get into the complexity of corruption, where I think, obviously, in my view, this is a totally corrupt process and one that needs to be eradicated, but you have to be very careful about how you go about it so you don't undermine the broader principles of democracy that are being affected by it. So with that double-edged sword you mentioned in mind, what should our approach be as Western organizations trying to promote democracy and tackle corruption in other countries? I mean, I think there's a few things that need to happen. One is that in terms of things like vote buying itself or petty corruption or ordinary citizens are paying bribes, et cetera, part of it is voter education. But I think this is genuinely really important here is to say this is not a normal part of a democratic process, and here's why it's a problem, right? When elections become strictly about who can pay the most, then you're not actually getting a say in, in policy, and you end up getting worse and worse outcomes. So even though you might get some money now, you're probably going to be less well-off in the future, and that education is really, really important. But I also think the second thing that needs to happen is having much clearer sets of guidelines for consequences for politicians who engage in corruption. Everything from vote buying to much more grand corruption, like embezzlement and stealing from the state, et cetera, or setting up shell companies, blah, blah, blah. All this stuff, you know, one of the problems with it is that politicians assume quite rightly often that they'll end up getting away with it. And it's because there's such a patchwork of policies towards developing countries when it comes to democracy promotion that there's so much gray area that a rational actor, you know, somebody who's thinking about their own best interests, is probably going to be willing to roll the dice um, because there's so few cases in which corruption is actually prosecuted. And then the third thing, and this is one of the trickiest ones, and it's probably the one where the West has you know, the most difficult role, is trying to ensure that they don't cheerlead for what I would say are you know bad faith anti-corruption efforts. So an example of this is in Madagascar, one of the countries that I work in, you have a series of politicians who trumpet their policies of anti-corruption. They create sometimes anti-corruption bodies. They sometimes will make you know, public displays of arresting an official and you know, taking their glitzy cars or whatever it is and trotting them out in front of the cameras. And very often that is sort of blindly cheer-led by the international community as cracking down on corruption. The problem is that this is very nearly almost always uh, a case of political vendettas put under the guise of anti-corruption. And, and I think one thing that's very dangerous is when that ends up getting endorsed, you tend to conflate anti-corruption with political purges. Mm -hmm. And it makes the situation much, much worse because it allows politicians to get applause for basically behaving in a broadly undemocratic way, i.e. getting rid of your opponents by jailing them. But you do it under the pretense that you are actually cracking down on bad behavior that you yourself are engaged in. And so I think if, if international actors are going to weigh in on those sort of anti-corruption activities, 
They need to hold the regime to account for its own abuses and not collectively praise around the edges uh, reforms. Yeah, the conflating of political vendettas and um, actual neutral anti-corruption work is something we see a lot in our work. Um, How could we as Western uh, democracy promoting organizations do a better job of parsing out that message to the in the countries that we work that there's a, a line and a difference between um, tackling corruption on a neutral, independent basis versus um, you know attacking your opponents. I think the point that doesn't get made enough in the sort of educational activities that I've seen, in my view at least, one thing that struck me is that often it's it's out of a sort of chastisement or lecturing style. And it's also in a way in which you sort of say you need to stop doing this. Let's take the vote buying example. I've seen a lot of education campaigns where they say vote buying is bad. Stop taking bribes, you know, for the good of democracy. The problem is that it's so abstract, especially in countries where poverty is rife, that the idea of giving up a material benefit for an abstract concept is very difficult to get people to buy into. So I think what you have to couch it in is to sort of say, look, you know, one of the reasons why this country is not growing the way it is, one of the reasons why your life is not taking on the same economic opportunities as it could is because this type of behavior isn't just isolated to an exchange between a voter and a politician. It ends up going up the food chain and creating a political culture in which the politicians simply get away with stealing at the much higher levels. Once they start to believe that vote buying is the way they get power and that doling out benefits selectively is the way they stay in power, then they're going to need to feed that by stealing money. And over the long run, you have to be able to say to voters, look, you will actually be richer if you live in a functioning democracy where you understand that the rules actually matter, where you understand that when politicians get elected, they're doing so because of things that they will do to help you, not a t-shirt they'll give you today. I think voters are smart enough to realize that if that is actually credible, if there's actually the possibility of reform, I think they'll believe that message and they should, because it's true. But I think the problem is that the, and this this speaks to democracy promotions problems more generally, is that often you have education campaigns that talk about the sort of promises of reform that aren't really backed up by political reality at the higher levels in Western governments, right? And And I think at some point, the inability or the ineffectiveness that you sometimes see with with these campaigns comes back to the fact that they're undercut by political leadership way higher up the food chain. And this has to be a broader conversation in Western democracies that like, we can't lecture the world on democratic reforms unless we are willing to put the policies in place that actually make those reforms plausible. Because otherwise, you can't tell a voter in an education campaign do this and your life will get better because they don't believe that your life will get better. So circling back to that point you made about um, how hard it is to convince somebody maybe living in poverty to give up on a short-term gain, um, a material gain, in favor of um, an abstract concept of a possible future where you would live in an uncorrupt society, um, Can you share any examples, uh, maybe from Madagascar, since it's a country you know well, of where that was done successfully? The problem is that, no, I mean, basically, most of the public is expecting vote buying to happen. There's so many toxic dynamics in Madagascar that are associated with it. 
So I, mean, I hate to be negative about this, but it's just the reality. I mean, one of the things that happens at every election cycle without fail in Madagascar is there is a large uptick in the kidnapping process of either foreign nationals or wealthy businessmen from what's called the Karana community. It's a South Asian descended community that came to Madagascar long ago and, and has significant business presence on the island. They're kidnapped and ransomed for money so that they can then buy votes. What it ends up doing is not just creating a transactional process uh, during the campaign, but it actually deters investment. You end up screwing up the possibility of growth because foreign companies look at kidnapping risk and they see it spike and then they see you know, instability around the election with violence and they see vote buying and the fact that the government is not viewed as credible. And all of a sudden, you know, it creates a cycle that's much, much bigger than one T-shirt passing hand. And that's that's one of the reasons why I think the campaigns have not been successful is that it's just totally entrenched in political culture to the point where kidnapping is a routine occurrence pre-election, right? I mean, it's so extreme. But there have been plenty of attempts, right? I mean, there's, there's lots of uh, NGOs that are trying to work on this, lots of domestic pro-democracy outfits that are trying to do voter education, but it's just it's an overwhelming ask when you don't have any sort of systemic reform. And, and that's where you get into the, the problem of the tragedy of the commons, where you sort of are, are telling people, don't take what you know your neighbors are taking. Again, I mean, this is a multi-level problem. So you have the problem of people on the ground promoting democracy needing to be linked up with people who are in power in Brussels and Washington, you know, walking the walk. Um, but then on top of that, you also need to have the government of a country like Madagascar engaged in genuinely anti-corruption uh, legislation and reforms so that when people are told by education outfits don't take the bribe, they actually believe that there's a possibility of change. And until that happens, I mean, I just, you know, I hate to be the, the sort of doom and gloom guy, but I know of no examples where there's been a real positive change towards corruption uh, in Madagascar. It's just, it's just part of the way the process works. Coming back to the idea of a definition for corruption, it strikes me that most people would agree that kidnapping and vote buying is wrong and corrupt. Um, but maybe there are uh, less extreme examples or cases or indicators that the international community should look out for when trying to parse out what's corrupt um, in this circumstance. What would you say those are? I think there's a few things here. One is that there's a difference between petty corruption or low-level corruption and grand corruption at the highest levels. The two often go hand in hand, so that's why they're sometimes used as indicators, right? So there's various lived corruption indices, et cetera, where they measure how often individuals have to pay a bribe in a country. And of course, that's not the same thing as how often the president is embezzling from the oil fund. Places that have high levels of, of daily bribes tend to have high levels of grand corruption and vice versa. So that's one way to measure it. I think in terms of the line, obviously, this sort of smaller definition, the more reductionist definition I gave you before of political officials or public officials using their office for private gain is one that's very clear, right? Anyone who is enriching themselves by using their, their position of power and, and is directly enriching themselves because of their position of power is almost certainly engaged in corruption. I think that beyond that, you know, a lot of it speaks to intent. You know, corrupt intent is obviously subjective. There are cultural differences, but most cases of corruption are not like the case of vote buying, where it can be culturally you know, absolved. I think whether you polled somebody in Nigeria or in the United States about whether it was okay that the oil minister you know, was, was funneling a million dollars a month to his 
child for an allowance or whatever. No, nobody disagrees about that. So I think there's most cases of corruption are not culturally dependent. And I, and I think actually that's where the good news is that this is something where, you know, it, it's actually a very effective message politically to go to get to, to sort of push that anti-corruption bent. The slightly unrelated point, but important point, I think, is that when we think about how corruption operates, and I, I think this does not get enough attention, we do not do enough of looking at the West and the system that enables the corruption that's happening in the places in Sub-Saharan Africa or Eastern Europe or Southeast Asia, et cetera. So when you have something like Transparency International's Corruption Perceptions Index, which, by the way, is a great organization, and I don't want to be seen to, to be speaking negatively about them, but I think the Corruption Perceptions Index does not hold Western powers to account at all for things that genuinely are massive contributors to how corruption plays out in, in developing countries. So, for example, you know, you, you sort of look at that index ranking and all the sort of, you know, expected players are at the very bottom. You know, you have the Yemens and the Syrias, the North Koreas, the Eritreas, et cetera exactly where you think. And then the top is exactly who you think, too. I mean, the Norways and the Swedens and the Denmark. But, you know, you have things like the Danske Bank scandal happening in some of these top-level countries in which banks are involved in massive amounts of money laundering from countries like Russia, which are very, very low on the index. And then you have very, very high on the index, the countries that facilitate the, the stealing, the theft, and the cleaning of the money. And so, you know, one of the things that I think is important to point out is that the top-level corruption couldn't exist without some of the Western involvement with the lawyers, the bankers, uh, you know, sort of the corruption services that allow these people to get away with what they're doing and use the money that they're stealing. Now, of course, that has nothing to do with the low-level corruption. You're not, you know, if you if you cleaned up the system in the West um, by making it harder to launder money, you know, policemen would still ask for bribes to get out of traffic tickets all over the world. But the difference is that once corruption at the higher level is stamped out, it becomes much more difficult to either get away or get away with or justify a political culture that is centered around corruption. And that's why I think one of the things that, you know, democracy promotion groups should be focused more on is holding the, the sort of Western actors that facilitate corruption to account in order to, to sort of mitigate it in countries that are more historically viewed as corrupt. I think that's a really important point that she made that um, corruption does not happen in isolation. Um, it's part of a global system um, that would require a global approach or at least an approach that recognizes that this global system exists. So how can the work, how can we make sure that the work that we do in one country on corruption um, speaks to or addresses that global issue? I think it's as simple as connecting the dots. I mean, I think the, the, the real answer and the bigger answer is that you need to have more systemic political change, which is not the role of a democracy promotion uh, you know, organization. Connecting the dots um, between the corruption that's happening in the various countries that you're working in with the actors who are facilitating the cleaning of the money. So, you know, OCCRP, the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, does a very, very good job of connecting the dots and basically showing how money that's stolen from, say, Azerbaijan ends up getting cleaned in London. Mm -hmm. And that's something where, you know, when, when you start, start to say, like, look, these are corrupt actors, I actually think it helps the messaging on the ground as well, because 
when you tell, you know, Malagasy society, you need to stop being corrupt, but you also point the finger at the enablers, then I think the message just goes over so much better because it's not all of a sudden a case of being viewed as some neo-imperialist actor or some sort of, you know, self-interested actor where it's, you know, do what I say, not as I do. It's actually the idea that we're going to police ourselves at the same time because we do have something to do with this. And yeah, we didn't steal the money, but it would be hard to clean the money and to use it in to buy, you know, say a glitzy property in Paris or in Brussels or in the United States if you didn't have the Western enablers in place. And so that's where I think it's about narrative storytelling and sort of saying like, look, here's how the, here's how the corruption happens in this country. Here's exactly what was stolen. Here's how it was stolen. And then here's how the system allowed this to get to happen with them getting away with it. Because that last piece is so important. It also, it can rile up, you know, domestic political opposition to corruption at the same time that it sort of puts a you know very uncomfortable spotlight on groups that tend to be out of the spotlight, like like Danske Bank, where they don't want a scandal, and you know the way that they start to invest in much better anti-money laundering checks is when they fear that scandal more. Um, and so even the banks that are trying to do better, they need to have a serious credible threat that they might get exposed if they were to participate in, in money laundering, for example, even unknowingly, to ensure that it's, it's really stamped out in a serious way. And that's where I think that sort of narrative arc of sort of showing how these things move from state coffers to politicians, to the West, back to the politician, uh, can be really, really effective at, at sort of getting people to understand what's happening and then to fight against it. So I think as a strong note to end on and it encapsulates you know the whole message that we were talking about here so thank you so much this has been really educational informative for me um thank you so much for being with us on the show thanks for, thanks so much for having me on the program Well, I hope this episode helped open your eyes a little bit to the complexities of corruption and how democracy-promoting organizations like IRI can help neutralize it. If you think you might be in the mood for some other thematic podlets, we call them, check out our episode on protest movements or our other short forum episodes. If there are any topics that you're interested in and we haven't covered, or you think we should cover it in a different way, please feel free to send us an email at podcast at iri.org or leave your comment and a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Global.